Eat your Doc Bernstein's Elvis special and peanut butter ice cream right now. Doc Bernstein's Elvis special and peanut butter cup ice cream is solid evidence that God loves us and wants us to be happy. There, I, I mean, I'll be honest here. I'm more of a salt than sweet guy, but there is something wonderful about the banana caramel and chocolate peanut butter. Oh, you mix that with a waffle cone, some cold water, and some good friends, and you've got a great time. Now, don't get me wrong. Rite Aid still sells pecan praline, and my wife still makes awesome berry pies. And anything that Dino cooks around the barbecue, I mean, you know, God has not left us without witness that he loves us. As much as God's witness that he loves us abounds, the proof of our lostness also abounds. Because you know as well as I do. If you told your kid, eat your Doc Bernstein's ice cream, they would fold their arms and say, make me. Now, I know there's somebody in this room who's tempted to think one of two things. You're tempted to think, A, my kid was so good, they're angelic, they would never say something like that. Or B, you're thinking, I thought my kid was the only one. But allow me to assure you that this bent away from authority is universal. And the Bible knows this. The Bible takes it for granted, which is exactly why God did not mess around with commanding us to enjoy ice cream or berry pies. Instead, he gave us 10 simple commands in part to show us that our stubbornness goes all the way down. Tonight, I want to give my reason for preaching this series on the Ten Commandments, and I want to give a couple of key interpretive factors so that you and I can keep the Ten Commandments in a Christian manner, as opposed to some moralist who doesn't know Christ. I want tonight and the next ten times to speak to good church people. You and me. I want to, by God's grace, through His Word, point out the proof of my stubbornness, your stubbornness, and I want to show us God's cure for our stubbornness. My big idea that I'm going to return to week after week as we go through this series is I am saved by the wood and I am taught by the stone. We will learn that it is the cross that saves us. We are saved by the wood. And we will see what, the holy, what holiness looks like in the Ten Commandments. We are taught by the stone. Keeping any or every command will not save you because you have already broken far too many to keep track of. On the other hand, 
ignoring the commands and saying you want to be like Jesus is as useful as a screen door on a submarine. (laughs) Now fortunately for us, Jesus didn't break any of the Ten Commandments. Fortunately for us, Jesus not only kept all Ten Commandments, but He took our penalty because we did not. We are saved by the wood. And the Ten Commandments remain. And if you read the Ten Commandments as interpreted and expanded in the New Testament, you will find that the Ten Commandments are the basic expression of the holiness God calls His people to live. Thus, we are taught by the stone. First, we'll look at the stone. The Ten Commandments begin with the briefest history of redemption. I'm going to take tonight from Exodus chapter 20 instead of Deuteronomy 5. But in verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, you, you have to miss this. And I'll, I'll bring this to your attention again. But I want you to catch right At the outset, before there is commandment one, what do we find? We find God saying, because I saved you, because I redeemed you, says the personal creator king of the universe, now I want you to live in such a certain way. Note, this is the exact opposite from something, someone that might say, you need to live in a certain way so that I will save you. That is not what God teaches. Okay, so what are the Ten Commandments? Ten Commandments are, you shall have no other God. You shall have, make no idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath and you shall honor your mother and father. Then he moves over, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, lie, or covet. Ten commands. Do you see how I did that? Next week I'll teach you how to do it yourself. (laughs) Rightly interpreted in light of what the New New Testament teaching on each of these commands is, one way of paraphrasing, and we're going to come back to this paraphrase over and over again, One way of paraphrasing the Ten Commandments so that we can apply them to our own lives is, number one, worship the right God. Number two, worship the God right. Number three, don't trifle with God. Number four, repent, rest, and rejoice frequently in Jesus. Respect authority. Don't despise anyone. Don't dishonor your spouse. Don't take what belongs to someone else. Don't deceive and don't value stuff or circumstances or relationship more than God or your near ones. If you and I are to understand the Ten Commandments, we must understand what Jason Meyer, pastor for preaching at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis said, When he said God's commands, speaking of the Ten Commandments, God's commands are invitations wrapped in obligations. God's commands are invitations wrapped in obligations. This quote gets at the heart of what I want to help us understand in this series. The Ten Commandments are not something to be repudiated or feared. 
The Ten Commandments are something to be embraced. And when rightly understood, we will see and understand what kind of life it is that God calls us to. Because the kind of life that is pursuing the Ten Commandments is the kind that brings Him glory, brings joy to our hearts, and brings growth to His kingdom. Lest we forget, I am saved by the wood, and I am taught by the stone. So I want to get to the New Testament tonight. That's where we're going to spend almost all of our time. And I want to find out where the law fits in to you and me becoming men and women of God that He has created us to be. So we have to ask a very basic question. And that question is, why the law in the first place? Why did God give us the law? Well, I'm going to give you two answers tonight of the possible answers to be given. But I want to say the first one is that this... The law, and specifically the Ten Commandments, reveal sin and the death that comes as a result of sinning. And I'm taking this from Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Paul writes, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through that commandment killed me. Now Paul only verses earlier had just gotten through saying the wages of sin is death. Now, here, Paul makes explicit the connection of the law to sin and death. The law shows us the sinfulness of sin. In other words, Paul's example, coveting, the law against coveting shows our conscious self that we disobey a commandment that we know, that we know is a commandment for us. You can be certain. The commandment against you and me coveting remains in effect today. And our hearts know that coveting is wrong. So now we get to this commandment and our minds know this also. And so what happens? The resulting death from that sin comes, quote, through the commandment, not because the commandment is evil or bad or sinful or wrong, but because I am. Part of the deceitfulness of sin is that I, you and me, we are promised life and wisdom and pleasure through eating the forbidden fruit. But we die. Because in our choice to sin, we have separated ourselves from the only source of life possible. And this brings us to the second purpose of the law I want to discuss tonight. The law is our guardian. I take this from Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, captive certainly is a good description of our slavery to sin that Paul was going to talk about in Romans 7. However, that's not the point of Galatians 3. The captivity Paul is referring to here is the captivity under the law. And this is the fact that we are subjects to the law's requirement just as an orphan child is to a guardian who is responsible to keep that child in line until he comes of age. So, what does that mean for us? Before we come to Christ in faith, the law teaches us our sinfulness. And so it guards us under sin. It captivates us under sin. So that you and I will see our predicament before the holy God whose blinding holiness is turned against us. This is the bad news. We must have the bad news well understood and felt before we can hear the good news. My friends, we need the Ten Commandments in part because the world outside doesn't want to believe that there is a such thing as sin. We need the bad news and this is it. We need the law to captivate us so that we can be freed by grace. But several times in these two verses talking about captivity to the law, we see that Paul is talking about faith. Faith, faith. What is this faith that Paul is so adamant about here? Here, it is this desperation. The faith is the desperation that the sinful soul experiences learning again and again and again that I cannot keep this law. Then, throwing him or herself on to the Lord, Lord, save me. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I trust you to do it. That is the call of faith. That is the desperate heart. And God always loves a desperate heart. Before we come to faith in Christ, we need the guardian law so that we know what covetousness is and that you and I deserve to die because we covet. After we come to faith in Christ, we realize that we are sons and we are welcomed by trusting God's promises for us in Christ even when we covet. Allow me to change the analogy. The law cannot save you. Stone will not save you from drowning. Stone will make it apparent that you are drowning. Stone will encourage you to call out on someone who can help you. Stone will make you realize what you need at that moment is wood. You need the cross. You need the promises of God for you in Christ. And one of the most important promises of God for you in Christ is that Jesus fulfills the law. Romans 8. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of sin and death has set you, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now a month of Sundays is not enough to unpack this paragraph but I want to make one point relevant to us tonight. How is it that believers are able to relate to the Ten Commandments? And we start by understanding our flesh is weak. We cannot fulfill the law. We cannot keep the Ten Commandments. So, God the Father sent God the Son for two things. To fulfill the law, sent Him in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to pay the penalty for us breaking that law and for sin. Then we get to verse 4 that says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us because we are counted to be in Christ. Praise Jesus. Now you can say amen. Thank you, brother. God credits my sin to Jesus and God credits Jesus' righteousness to me. The law establishes requirements that I cannot fulfill. I am unable to be sinless. So, Jesus was sinless for me. Now theologians call this the great exchange. The result of this great exchange is that persons who walk according to the Spirit, those who are enabled now for the first time to walk in actual obedience as imperfect as that obedience will necessarily be, those of us who are able to walk in the Spirit by the power of the Spirit, we will reject the values of this world and we will reject the empowering of the flesh because that is antithetical to God and we will cling to a life of love empowered by the Spirit of God. Now let's turn to another passage is perhaps more familiar to most of us. Ephesians 2, 8-10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Quickly, Break this down. Number one, we are saved by grace. Grace is the free, unmerited gift of God to undeserving sinners. But I have a question. A gift of what? It's a gift, but it's a gift of what? It's the gift of God's power to save us. We are weak. God is strong. God accomplishes His kingdom purposes, namely fulfilling the law so that He can gift us that salvation. And His kingdom purposes include the salvation that we need from the penalty, power, and one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. And all of this will be quite apart from anything you might deserve. 
Because you and I don't deserve any of it. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace through faith. What is this faith? Again, it's this desperate cry. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Faith is this knowing and then trusting God's promises to do what He said He would do when we need it most. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace through faith. And we are saved by grace through faith for good works. Now again, I know I'm water skiing through these verses and there's so much more to be said. But let me oversimplify for the sake of the sermon. The good works that we are called to, that we are saved for, is a holy life. However you unpack that. But one, perhaps the best short description of a holy life is the Ten Commandments. So if we have this short description of what the holy life looks like, then we have to unpack that a little more carefully. And in order to do that, I want to look at the words of Jesus. Because we are saved by grace through faith for good works expressed in love. You're familiar with the passage where Jesus is approached first by the Pharisees and then the Sadducees and then He is brought up, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your near ones as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Jesus tells us that you shall love your near ones. I like sometimes using the direct translation of what is in there because it kind of shakes us up. Well, we're used to saying neighbors. But we don't like our neighbors because they barbecue tri-tip right next door and they don't invite us over for any, right? But our near ones. Well, now wait a minute. I got to think about this. Who are my near ones? My near ones are the people I stand in line with over at Vaughn's. My near ones are the ones that I come to church with. My near ones are the people who are all around me, including the people who are barbecuing tri-tip right next door. Jesus commands me to love whoever it is that He puts in my path. If you're going to love your near ones, you're not going to murder them. Or as Jesus further interprets that, you're not even going to despise them. You're not going to dishonor your spouse in thought and attitude and action if you love her or him. You wouldn't think of taking what belongs to someone else. And there's no way that you're going to value stuff and circumstances and relationship more than God or others if you love God or your near ones. Love truly is the fulfillment of the commandments. Holy smokes, all of a sudden, the Ten Commandments are getting a whole lot more uncomfortable. Anybody hot right now? Whew. But then, you add the positive command to love your near ones, and oh my goodness, I have to desire to sacrifice for the good of everyone who's near me? Ouch! You better be walking in the Spirit if you're going to do all that. Now, 
I'm going to argue over the next several weeks as we keep coming back to each of the commandments and as we unpack them as they are revealed in Scripture, I'm going to keep coming back to this fact that Jesus here in Matthew 22 is unpacking the two tables of the law. Jesus here talks about the first table of the law when he says you shall love the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods. You shall have no idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath and you shall honor your father and mother. But then the second table of the law, or as Jesus puts it, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we will not murder or commit adultery or steal, lie, or covet. But what's vital for us to see right now before we get into these Ten Commandments individually is that as it is revealed in the New Testament, it is love for God. It is love for our near ones. Not naked obedience that completes or fulfills the law. It is the walking by the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. It is this love that will therefore change how the Christian looks at the Ten Commandments instead of what some moralist would say. Someone who just wants to obey laws because it makes them feel good. It's not with the letter. For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And elsewhere, Paul sums all of this up beautifully in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, the aim of our charge is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Once again, go closely, look at what Paul is saying, and you will see that he covers all of this. Love God. Have a pure heart. Love God. Okay, there's the first five commands. Have a good conscience. In other words, do your duty to your near ones. Okay, there's the second five commands. And then he says, have a sincere faith. Know and trust the promises of God for you in Christ. Why? Because we are saved by the wood and we are taught by the stone. So I want to ask our central question again. And we're going to find out what John Stott says. He says, so we return to the question whether the law is still binding on Christians and whether we are expected still to obey it. Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that Christian freedom is freedom to serve, not freedom to sin. There's the obedience part. We are still slaves, slaves of God and of righteousness, but also no, because the motives and means of our service have completely changed. Why do we serve? Not because the law is our master and because we have to, but because Christ is our husband and we want to. Not because obedience leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to obedience. And how do we serve? We serve in the new way of the Spirit. For the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the distinguishing characteristic of our new age. And so of the new life in Christ. Allow me to put John Stott's paragraph here into one sentence. I am saved by the wood. And I am taught by the stone. The Ten Commandments, as we will be looking at them in the next couple of months, are the expression of what the love you have for God and the love you have for your near ones look like. Listen, 
If you habitually desire to live by the Ten Commandments, you must ask yourself, do I love God or my neighbor? If you habitually love God and your neighbor, then you need not ask yourself if you habitually keep the Ten Commandments. You will. Focus on loving God and loving your neighbor and you will recognize that you are saved by the wood and taught by the stone. So back to the place of the Ten Commandments in redemption history. Where, why, how. When I was in third grade, I learned the multiplication table. Actually, I had to ask Donna, when did we learn multiplication tables? Never mind. I learned multiplication tables. And I remember, I, what I don't remember is any book that a teacher gave us that listed every single multiplication problem that I could ever possibly face. It didn't happen. Instead, what did I find? I remember instruction on how to go about multiplying, how to do this so that whatever problem I came up against, I would know the process of doing multiplication. And then I had endless repetition on worksheets so I'd get a hang of it. The Old Testament law is case law. And what they did is they took the Ten Commandments and they applied it to different situations. And then the priests could look at these and they could see how it was that God intended for these commandments to be played out. And so that's what Old Testament law basically, I know I'm oversimplifying, is. But now we're driving down the road and even the cross is in our rearview mirror but as we look in the rearview mirror, we see the cross, we notice that the law still remains. We still have ten of those. But we see those ten rules not as a means of earning our salvation. In fact, by the way, I don't think any believing Jews saw them as a means of earning their salvation, but that's another topic. But what we see is the Ten Commandments as a foundation upon which we can stand and rejoice in our relationship with Jesus, knowing we have the ground rules for living. Because we are saved by the wood and we are taught by the stone. The Ten Commandments are a revelation of the will of God for His people. They express the best way to live. The Ten Commandments won't save you. You need the cross for that. You need to trust that God the Son won for you the righteousness God the Father credits those who trust His promises. And you need to trust that God the Son took the penalty for your sins because you and I are guilty of breaking all Ten Commandments. And so we approach them. We approach this law the same way that the psalmist did. The true Jew, the believing Jew, the one who loved Yahweh wrote this. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day, I praise you, Lord, for your righteous rule. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make you stumble. This psalmist, more sometimes I think than myself, 
this psalmist understood beyond any shadow of a doubt that I am saved by the wood and I am taught by the stone. Lord, we come humbly because we remember that we cannot do any of this apart from the empowering of Your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we come to Your table, we do so understanding that we don't deserve to be here either. But You open the door for us. And we come so that we can rest in Your presence. And we can rejoice at Your gift. And we can be refreshed by Your Spirit. Bless us now as we come to Your table.